that whole bandwagon of following England is, is just bonkers. And they win a game and it's like, well, they're the best team in the world and they're so not. OTB AM, weekdays from 7.30 AM. Listen on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Black box car insurance lets young drivers bounce past high-cost premiums. Drive safe and save more with GetSetGo.ie. How's it going, folks? End here. Welcome along to Team 33. Just a little note at the top of this podcast to say that for some people who only listen to this show as a podcast, that it actually goes out at 9 o'clock every Friday night on News Talk as well. So you'll hear me referencing the fact that the Euros have kicked off, but that is for the radio listeners' benefit. I know that they have not kicked off yet. They're kicking off this Friday. So the show will actually be going out in the radio after that first fixture. So if you hear me referencing the fact that the Euros have kicked off, that's for the radio listeners out there. But we are really excited to have the Euros kicking off this week and we will have a daily Euro show as well every day on Off The Ball social channels throughout the tournament. Shane Hannan, Eamon Dumphy, uh, Damien Delaney and even myself will make an appearance every Friday on the show looking ahead to all the fixtures of the day and looking ahead to the biggest talking points of the tournament as well. So really excited to get involved in that. Stay tuned across OTB social channels for that Euros Daily Show as well. So we wanted to get in early with this preview. Myself, Will O'Callaghan, Colin Buig, previewing Euro 2020. Enjoy. Oh, the shame that will get. If you've got all the fans there. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladici, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions on anything, uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Now you're very welcome along to Team 33, the football happier here in Off The Ball and we're all a big happy bunch here in Off The Ball this week because the Euros have started and we've all come down with a case, a mild case or a not so mild case in some people's cases of Euros fever. We're very excited to have football back for the summer, a festival of football if you want to call it that. Willow Callahan and Colin Buig are on the line with me lads. Are you sir as excited about this as I am? Maybe more excited once upon a time, lads, when the Euros was a little bit more restrictive than it is now. Uh, this seemed to be the one that was wonderfully set up for Ireland to qualify because nearly everyone in UEFA has gone to the finals. And unfortunately, despite the fact that at the time we were set to host four games during the tournament, we were unable to make it along to the finals. There is a little bit of guff in the tournament, as we'll uh, probably work through over the next while. But I think once this tournament particularly gets down to the last 16, it's... Very like there's some very good teams in it, and despite the fact that the bookmakers seem to have edged towards England, I'm really surprised that France aren't the favourites to win this tournament out. And maybe the only reason that they're not is because they've got a difficult group to navigate first with that group of death in Group F, and then potentially they might have to play the English at Wembley in the round of 16, which makes the path that bit more difficult. But if France could navigate their group and say overcome England along the way or overcome whoever comes out of England's group. I think France would be very difficult to beat, but it's uh, it's a tournament I'm really looking forward to. I've actually enjoyed end of the fact that you know the football ended for a couple of weeks, so it was like a little palate cleanser after the Champions League final and the end of the leagues. And now I'm really in the mood to watch some international football after scouting some of the teams in friendlies over the last week or so. Yeah, it was a breather that we had, a buffer between the mad season that it was. So in case you haven't been paying attention to what's going on, if you haven't looked at the groups, the groups go like this. Group A is Italy, Switzerland, Turkey and Wales. Group B, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Russia. 
Group C is Austria, Netherlands, North Macedonia, and Ukraine. Group D has Croatia, Czech Republic, England, and Scotland, two home nations, if you want to call them that. Group E is Poland, Slovakia, Spain, and Sweden. And the group of death, as mentioned by Will there, is France, Germany, Hungary, and Portugal. Colm, we'll start with you. Euro's memories, first of all, what are your memories of this tournament? I guess my opening memory, just because of my age, is probably Greece winning it in that, in that shock tournament. But you're a little bit older than me, if I'm, I'm, I'm kind enough to tell the listeners of Team 33. So what's your first Euro, Euro's memory? I was going to say go on North Macedonia, first of all. And uh, secondly, for the memory, uh, the one that I remember first is probably David Trezeguet's golden goal winner in Euro 2000 um, to complete that uh, exquisite French generation, the late 90s, early noughties. And that finish as well from Trezeguet, that left-footed volley into the roof of the net. And I remember I was in um, a pub that had just opened in Cork that's still open to this day. Um, and the atmosphere was unbelievable because everybody was well aware of what France were achieving at the time. And that Italy side was brilliant too and very lovable. And you wouldn't have minded at all if Italy had thwarted um, France's history making. But that was a fan memory of mine. And then I would say Euro 2004 and that Czech Republic team, they were just unbelievable to watch. Uh, and a bit disappointed that they didn't win that tournament actually outright, even though it was great to see Greece win it. But I had a soft spot for those Czechs. I think they got to the semi-final that year. And then, um, you're 2008, but I mean, we're talking adulthood here. But Andre Archivan for Russia, he was just unbelievable at that time. And Arsenal signed him the following season. Um, and the Croatia side too, uh, managed by Slavin Bilic, were brilliant. I think I put, a, I think one of the few bets of my life that I put on was Croatia winning that tournament. And I think if I have the right tournament, they lost to Turkey um, after celebrating a goal when they more or less thought they were through and then forgot to defend when it kicked off again and Turkey got through. Uh, but I would say overall, as my like ultimate Euros memory, even though I was too young to, to remember it, but memory in terms of I just always look back on it, and I'm sure I watched it, but I can't remember it fully, was Euro 96 and England-Germany in the semi-final. Um, and just, you know, Gaza's miss and the whole atmosphere around it. And I can't get enough of watching documentaries about it. There was actually one about five years ago that Alan Shearer did for the BBC, um, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the tournament. And I still have that recorded on the TV. I watch it every so often. I'll probably watch it again this weekend on the 25th anniversary. So that just is, is full of nostalgia for me. But I have to be honest and say the first one I truly remember is Euro 2000 and that Trezeguet winner. Yeah, the 96 Euros goes down in one of those places that I wrote about this on Off the Ball before that you almost remember even if you don't remember because it's always on TV or there's always pieces about it, there's always writing about it, always interviews about it. It's just one of those abiding memories from the tournament. Another one of those that I was looking into far off the ball, it's a thing that's coming, I don't know when they're coming out, but they're coming out sometimes soon, is the 1976 and I don't think anybody here is old enough to remember that because it was hard enough to find someone that was old enough to remember this. But the story of the Penenka penalty, the birth of it, is absolutely fascinating. The first one happened in the 1976 European Championship final against Germany, Antonin Penanka from Czech Republic. So basically the story behind this, Czech Repo- or Czechoslovakia at the time was a communist state, still a communist state, and it was nearing the end of that. So it had a mix between Slovaks and, and Czechs, and they get to the finals. It's still the four-club tournament. There's not uh, the whole 24 teams at that stage. It's Germany... Czech Repo- Czechoslovakia at the time, Netherlands, 
and the hosts, uh, which was uh, Hungary. So Hungary, obviously, a good a good side at that point in time as well. Essentially, what happens is the Germans don't practice penalties because they're not supposed to have penalties in the final. At that stage, it was always supposed to go to a replay. But the German FA rang up the U, uh, UEFA before the tournament, asking them if they could, if it went to penalties in the final, could they have penalties? Or if it went to extra time, could they have penalties rather than a replay? Because there was a German cup the next week, so they wanted to have the players rested in time for that. So the Germans didn't practice penalties. The Czechs did, and Panenka was practicing the Panenka penalty for months in advance. He even did it on Ivor Viktor, the Czechoslovakian goalkeeper, in a club friendly or a club match. And they begged him not to do it in the final, but he did it, and it was just magical. And that's where the Panenka penalty comes from. So a bit of history there for you on Team 33. Will, your memories of Euros, are you old enough to remember the 96 one? I am, yeah. I think I was nine that summer, and it was a pretty seminal moment, uh, particularly for English football, because it was around about the time, kind of post-Hillsborough, when all of the stadiums in England were brand new, effectively, in all-seater stadiums for that tournament. And, you know, we had a breakthrough for many players at Euro 96. Like, I was captivated by Davar Sukor. Um, Zinedine Zidane uh, really had a wonderful tournament uh, for France as well despite the fact that France didn't sparkle I remember watching him at Old Trafford just gliding across the pitch and at that point you knew his time at Bordeaux wasn't going to be too much longer and he eventually went to Juventus and became you know, a megastar of world football after that we were probably all captivated by England even at a young age to see how they were going to do because you know, even their media was trying to align the fact that it had been 30 years since 1966 and maybe their name was on the trophy when they finally got to host the tournament again and the Germans, and particularly I remember Olivia Bierhoff's uh, celebration after they scored, uh, decided that that wasn't going to be the story. And, you know, a typically efficient German team who were good at penalties learned their lesson from 1976 anyway, and after the Penenka not practicing them. Uh, Germany, as opposed to West Germany in this case, you know, just went out and eked out the results all the way through the tournament. And that Czech team were fantastic as well. You know, some players got moves on the back of just how they played in the tournament. Like I remember Karl Poborski after his chip, I think he got his move to Manchester United almost on the back of just that during the tournament. So uh, Euro 96 definitely uh, stands out because a lot of the other great Euro memories along the way uh, were probably experienced, like Colm said, through documentaries or watching DVDs, uh, whether that be the Marco van Basten volley, you know, Ireland playing at 1988 at the European Championships, which none of the three of us saw live, but I've probably watched those goals millions of times in different compilations along the way, or the various Jack Charlton docs that were out over the last year or so. And then, yeah, I think Euro 2000 for me is probably the best tournament in my lifetime in terms of just the overall standard of football that was played at that one there were some absolutely cracking games i remember portugal being brilliant and really entertaining and not winning it and then being thinking they would almost assuredly win it when they hosted in 2004 uh, but greece then decided to rip up the script as they went along and you know there's something almost as beautiful about greece's win in between what was two great teams in terms of france's world cup team that went on to back it up by winning the european championships and a spain team who finally got the breakthrough in 2008 and would go on to win three successive international tournaments in a row. When you look back at the records, Greece almost feel like an aberration. But when you consider, you know, that Greece during that tournament had to beat the tournament host Portugal twice, they beat the Czech Republic, and they beat France. None of it was pretty, but there is something quite glorious about that story with the fact that the rank outsiders going into the tournament would go on to lift the trophy. And for me, there's a certain romance attached to that, you know, even more so than watching the glowing football of France and Spain either side of them. Mm. I like 2004 because that was the year that Porto and Monaco ended up in the Champions League final as well. 
and then Greece obviously won the Euro. So it was a, a year of upsets in terms of Irish performances at the Euro. So 2012 is probably the first one that I remember Ireland playing at. And I remember getting so overly excited when we took the lead against Croatia. Uh, Sean St. Ledger scored the first, and I think might have been one of the only goals, if not the only goal that Ireland scored at that tournament. Um, very short-lived, Trapatoni era obviously coming to a, a bitter end. And then Euro 2016, which was amazing, like an incredible tournament. So, Colin, your memories of those for as an Irish fan? Jesus, like I nearly had forgotten about 2012, really. I was just thinking of Euro 88. Repressed really, memories, Colin. Stop. Really in the years and Euro 88, like living vicariously and asking uh, relatives, what was it like? Um, and they were like, well, no one really expected anything from Euro 88. It was really Italian 90 that it really got going. Um, 2016, yeah, I remember working the day that Ireland played France. And there's a Robbie Brady scored a third minute penalty. It was very early. Yeah, and too early, did, too early. Yeah, too early. Too early. They scored too early. Too early. And uh, then France just slowly, methodically ripped Ireland apart for the rest of the match. But the ah, like that, you know, the game against Italy and you know, Italy reserve team in the last group game, that was just like the atmosphere was just mad. Like that was just magical, you know. And it was just the fact that Wes Ulihan had missed that sitter right before creating history with that assist, and it was just and the camera was just so aesthetically pleasing for the TV viewer because of the cross going in and you could see Robbie Brady running towards it and you knew he was going to get there before the goalkeeper and then Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane embracing afterwards and Gigi Buffon going over to congratulate it was all a bit patronising but it was lovely and um, that was a great memory and it was, it's just a shame that Ireland haven't qualified for more Euros and, and like Will was saying especially this time around when we had such a good opportunity to do it and it really feels like it is FOMO because like Every other country of note is playing yeah. except Ireland, so we're watching from afar. And uh, yeah, I, I just um, I'll cherish twenty sixteen. I'll cherish twenty sixteen. Yeah, it was amazing. What What was interesting about that twenty sixteen tournament is that because of the stage of the game against France or against Italy, rather, because of the way it fell, it wasn't on RTE. It wasn't on the national broadcaster and you can only get commentary from this guy sports commentary or a foreign commentary of that game. It's really difficult to find Irish broadcasters who covered it because it was on of, ITV and it. it was on ITV. Sorry, yeah. ITV. Yeah. So that that's why that's if you ever hear a montage with 2016, it's always an English commentator when Brady scores the goal. It's never an Irish one, which is very unusual and quite kind of unsettling in a way as well when you're listening to it. Uh, but yeah, I think that that tournament was the vindication of Wes Houlihan. And the sort of the, uh, I don't know, the coming together of all the people calling for Wes to come on and Wes to start and Wes being the main man for Ireland, scores against Sweden, sets up that goal against Italy and basically makes the tournament what it was for Irish fans. Were you at it, Will? Were you covering it or were you still in Ireland? No, I was working from home. And, and the thing that I really remember uh, from covering that tournament, just in terms of bulletins, was that for some bizarre reason, there always seemed to be goals at the top of the error every single time. I know Phil Egan said the same when he was working on Today FM, that I think every bulletin he went to read when Ireland was playing, it was almost like Martin O'Neill's side and knew that they needed to score a goal when he was just about to go live. And there was a lot of rewrites when he was uh, getting ready to go on air. But yeah, I mean, look, 
Um, Wes Houlihan had a very long way around to get into that Ireland team. And realistically, he probably should have been in there before his late 20s. But he was silky smooth in the middle of the pitch. And like his goal against France, or sorry, against Sweden, I should say, in France, at the Stade de France, was an amazing piece of technique as well. Yeah. He had a lot to do when that ball was actually crossed in to hit it as sweetly as he did. And it's funny, the game against Sweden is the type of start that we were all praying for back in Euro 2012. Like, my abiding memory of this week uh, back in 2012, Enda, was that almost all of us Irish supporters had convinced ourselves that we're in a very difficult group. It was going to be hard to finish ahead of either Italy or Spain. What if we were to get a result against Croatia in the first game? Who knows? Maybe we can unsettle them. And Spain had looked a little bit below par, not quite at their 2008 and 2010 form, actually going into that tournament. And then... Yeah, they managed to just kind of turn it on under Vincente del Bosque during the tournament itself. But uh, I remember that was the feeling. In 2016, I think I was a little bit more pessimistic going into it because of what had happened in 2012, which, you know, was a horrible way for a lot of the players that had been involved in the golden era for the Republic of Ireland to actually finish out. Like, I think a lot of the players that probably played in 2012 would have done a lot better if we had qualified in Paris three years previously and gone to the World Cup in South Africa. But Trapattoni had stayed loyal to that group of players who had around for a long time. And many of them had played as far back as the World Cup in 2002. So at least they got to go to a European Championships. But we were well past our best when we went to that finals. And just kind of three fairly embarrassing hammerings that we took in the end. So I wasn't sure what was going to happen in 2016. Obviously, the Sweden result was a really good start. And then to have it down to play against Italy, we were very lucky, as you mentioned, when it came to the scheduling, that Italy already knew that they were advancing to the knockout stages of the tournament. And therefore, they were happy enough to mess around a little bit and to rest some players for the final game. But I still think that ranks up there with one of the better Irish performances that we've had in a major final. Uh, Particularly the kind of first 20, 30 minutes of the game, we really took it to Italy. And like that Robbie Brady goal, it's a fantastic pass by Wes to open things up, first of all. And then, you know, he pops up again in a forward position. Robbie Brady makes a really good run for the header too. And I don't care what Italy team was on. I will enjoy that as much as beating Italy's first team back in 1994 at the World Cup um, because it sent us through to the knockout stage of the tournament. The unfortunate part was on that sunny Saturday afternoon when we played against France, as Colin mentioned, we scored too early as the cliche goes and had far too long to hold on for. And John O'Shea and I think was it, was Duffy playing beside him that day in... in uh, the game against France. Yeah, that sounds right. I'm not sure. It sounds right, it was but... The two of them kind of went a bit too far back. And then you had mm-hmm. Anton Griezmann, who was in the form of his life, running at them at the time. And loads of runners coming through the French midfield. Uh, they weren't quite as kind of considered as they were at the 2018 World Cup. And you just knew we were hanging on for dear life and just trying to stay in that game. And I think once France hit the front, I didn't really get a feeling that they were going to come back. But... We definitely didn't embarrass ourselves in 2016 by comparison to 2012. Like, I mean, I remember chatting to Sean St. Ledger and he was saying like his only memory of 2012 was actually scoring that goal. He is literally, like Colm, blocked every single moment out after that. Like he remembers everyone giving out about the Irish fans going over and just having a drink and a bit of crack in places like Poznan throughout the tournament. But he says, yeah, I remember going ahead against Croatia. I remember that game not ending well. Don't like to remember Spain or Italy. So I think even that group of players uh, try and forget what happened in 2012. Yeah, I think we were the worst team in the Euros history or one of the worst in in Euros history at 2012. It was incredibly bad. 2016 was better. 2016 was better. And I remember uh, my my memory from that is working. I was working in a restaurant kitchen at the time and the chef was a big English geezer, like as, as English as they come, Cockney. And he didn't really know about football, but he was following England and 
England were playing Iceland the same day as France were playing Ireland. The France game was on first. And if Ireland won that game, if England won their game, then England and Ireland were facing each other in, in the next round. And both of us were ready to book flights to Paris because it, it, you just couldn't miss that. You couldn't miss England playing Ireland. Even if you couldn't get a ticket, you had to be there. And then, of course, uh, France go on to win the game. Iceland go on to, to beat England. And none of us are... Uh, celebrating at the end of the year let's move on to this year's euros then because there's a lot to get into i do want to start with england and we don't want to spend too much time on england because that's all that anybody's talking about these days we'll start with our favorites england as you said our, our bookies favorites for a lot of the a lot of the bookies going in into this tournament i call them i i'm not sure about this i i don't think they're favorites I, I haven't heard many people say they're favorites no chance they like they have the psychological barrier of the semi-final first of all and then second of all, they don't know what to do with their team. And, uh, and I was only thinking about it last night, right, that we named on Team 33 last week our England 11s for the first game of, the, of, of their European Championships against Croatia. And I'm having complete second thoughts about the team I picked because now I do want to use wit. So that's just me, right, someone who doesn't care about England's fate. And then I'm thinking, geez, I wonder how many second thoughts actual qualified expert coaches are having. Because the England, it's so stacked in quality in certain areas. It's like the German midfield. It's just so, so strong in specific areas and then quite weak in others. Um, but I do want to see England go as far as possible. I'd love to see them go all the way to the final because I want to see what happens to England in a major tournament final because none of us have seen that in our lifetime. So I would love to see that happening. But uh, they wouldn't, they'd be maybe like the... The, the lower end of a top five favorite list, maybe for me, but I would have a couple of handful of countries ahead of them easily in my favorites tag. Mm. Will, would you agree with that? I'd have them a bit closer to favorites than that because I think that they have the huge advantage of being able to stay in England for the entire tournament and basically play at Wembley for the best part throughout the competition where they've got a remarkable record. And the one thing about England is... All right. Defensively, I think there has to be question marks, particularly over the goalkeeping position where it seems at this point that Jordan Pickford is now going to be the number one. The fact that they're bringing Harry Maguire and Henderson effectively injured and possibly not able to play until the end of the group stages maybe speaks to the strength and depth that they have. But I think they need Maguire to play at the center of that defense. Like it's a huge step up for Connor Cody uh, to go in and potentially uh, start the first game this coming weekend It, excuse me, in the middle of their defense. And then you're relying on John Stones having a good tournament. Probably Kyle Walker, we think at this stage, playing as a right centre-back. And then they'll play Trippier and either Shaw or Chilwell as their two wing-backs. It's not really the strongest of defences when you consider that they've got loads of good options further up the field. And then Gareth Southgate is going to have to find some kind of way to fit those attack-minded midfielders all into the same side. Because... I think he has shown previously he likes to play with width, particularly over on the right-hand side, which would indicate that Jaden Sancho will probably start on the right. If we take that Harry Kane is entirely immovable as their number nine, a big decision has to be made on the left side of the attacker, whether that's going to be Marcus Rashford, whether maybe Mason Mount will play out there, whether Phil Foden will play out there. And how do you solve a problem like the form of Phil Foden, Mason Mount and Jack Grealish and trying to fit them into the one side where you'll feel that they all probably should play. Because I would imagine, I was listening to you guys last week, like Declan Rice plays as the holder. Does he go conservative and put a second box-to-box style midfielder in in Henderson's absence? 
or does he potentially put another playmaker and try and fit them all in? That's the conundrum really for Gareth Southgate. And they start with their most difficult game in the group. They play Croatia this coming weekend. And like for England, as much as we talk about France, Portugal and Germany trying to avoid England, England will want to finish top of their group so that they don't get the group winners in Group F. So there's not really time to experiment when it comes to this coming Saturday. I think Gareth Southgate's got quite a few question marks to work out ahead of this weekend. But notwithstanding, really strong squad can put out two strong 11s, but probably can't put out two very strong defensive units. The other thing is we're yeah. probably overanalyzing their starting 11 because they have a quality bench that they can unload if they want to. So it's probably like you have your starting 11, but you can change around if you want to. I would definitely, like Will was musing there about the box-to-box midfielder or shoehorning Mount into that so you can put Foden and Grealish into the team too. I would definitely go with the former. i go box-to-box all day next to Rice. Uh, my choice is Jude Bellingham. I'd easily have mm-hmm. Calvin Phillips in there too because he's such a good passer. I know that he, like Phillips is far from the most talented player in that squad, but just in terms of a system, it's more balanced than ahead of them. But I pro- I pro- I'll stick with Be- Bellingham. But uh, you have to make a choice between between the three lads, like between Mount Foden and Grealish. You're just going to have to make ruthless choices. And I would say like, at least one of them should miss out. Probably two if you want to get some pace into your attacking lineup as well. So yeah, like, uh, Bellingham is the sensible choice column to come in because then your midfield has a better shape to it. And I think if that happens, probably at the moment, Jack Grealish might be the guy to miss I out. I Grealish will go, yeah. I think it's difficult not to play Phil Foden and you definitely have to play Mason Mount, whether it's as, you know, the kind of apex of your midfield or whether he's going to play over on the left-hand side. There's no way you can't play Mason Mount. Yeah, you couldn't have been listening to us too uh, closely, Will, because you can you can play every single attacking player that you want in that England squad. <laughs> because, I mean, it doesn't matter. You're not going to win the tournament anyway. And I, I actually, I, I, I'm so far, I may be completely wrong with this but I'm so far away from England for this tournament I do not think they have the strength and depth when you actually when you actually I, I think if you think about it if you look at their squad it's like the cheerleader effect where you see Harry Kane Phil Foden Jaden Sancho uh, Jack Grealish all these great players but then you're forgetting that if you look closely at that squad they've got either Dean Henderson or Jordan Pickford in nets they've now got probably Connor Cody starting in center back they don't have Harry Maguire the next centre back is Tyron Mings, then maybe John Stones, Kieran Trippier, Ben White from Brighton. I mean, like they don't have that great of a squad. And if, if you compare it to France, who are for me the favourites for this tournament, with the likes of Kimpembe, um, hang on, I've got their squad in front of me here. They've got Kimpembe, Pavar, Varan, Zuma, Lucas Hernandez, Longley. That's their defence. Then they've got Benzema, they've got Mbappe, they've got Griezmann, they've got Kante. Maybe they don't have the same depth that uh, that England do in the midfield, but they've got the depth in defence. They've got a world-class goalkeeper. They've got a world-class centre defensive midfielder and they've got the best young talent in the world playing up front for them alongside one of the most experienced strikers ever in, in, in international football and in club football as well. Multiple Champions oh, League winners. So. Have you just called Hugo Lloris a world-class goalkeeper? Well, he was at one point in time. He's better than Jordan Pickford. He remembers being world-class. He's better than <laughs> Jordan Pickford. Hey, but like, Enda, you, you just named a load of good England players and your weak England players. I mean, with the exception of the goalkeepers. But if that's, they are weak in the defensive um, central area, including... Mm. They don't have enough options at home field, but they have a like their strength is their strength and depth. That is but their what, biggest. Oh, I don't, but I don't think they, they have, have any strength and depth. Players. 
No, they, ha- they, they are stacked with strength and, strength and depth. Don't mind about the defence. Just play to your strengths going forward. Mm-hmm. England's biggest problem is psychological. This is the best squad England have had since 2006 or four, four or six, whichever, whichever squad you think was better was marginal. Mm-hmm. I think they say themselves that the Euro 2004 squad was marginally better. But they, they, uh, that's their biggest uh, weakness is their mentality. Like, I think it's a stacked England squad with quality. And I think their defence is okay, but it's not terrible. They're probably only really weak in goal, I would say. I mean, it's not, it's like, it's it's not a, a bottom of the group defense, obviously, but it's also, uh, but not, what, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is France have a stacked defense and an attack that is as good, if not better than England. So they're well ahead of them, in my opinion. And they've, oh, they've obviously got that. the, they've got the mentality as well of already being World yeah. Cup winners. So, I mean, uh, for me, I, I can't look past France. So before we take a break, then we'll get to our dark horses and maybe a disappointing team that we, we think might not appear at the tournament. So, Will, who are your favourites for this? Yeah, two in the same group. Um, unfortunately for us, I think Portugal are going to do quite well ahead of us playing in the World Cup qualifiers. I think um, Portugal, the one thing they probably will have to work out is who becomes the focal point of the attack and does it all have to go through Cristiano Ronaldo? Because they've got so many other good attacking players, but Portugal generally, and having watched all of their games so far in the World Cup qualifiers because they've been in Ireland's group, have deferred to Cristiano, who is now playing effectively right through the middle as a number nine at this point, which restricts the amount of possession that players like Bernardo Silva and Bruno Fernandes get in attacking positions. The one thing that Portugal have, though, is actually a really solid defence. Like We're familiar with pretty much all their team because they play in the Premier League at this stage. Uh, but Ruben Diaz is going to be right at the centre of that defence. We know all about Rio Patricio. Uh, they've got a good, if not the best, midfield in the tournament itself. And then if Cristiano can provide the firepower and he's got the chance to go for the international goal-scoring record uh, during this tournament, and also I would think the drive for Cristiano to try and be the guy who's on the pitch to actually win the championship this time around... I'm sure it will have hurt Cristiano to have been on as a cheerleader after his injury in the final going back to 2016 and not being the guy who scored the winner. You've got Renato Sanchez back to form with the way that he's played for Lille this year. I think Portugal have got a stacked squad. It's just getting out of that group is the difficult part. And whoever gets out of that group probably in second place would have to overcome England to qualify for the uh, quarterfinals of the tournament. So that makes it tricky in its own right. But if you come through that, they've got a really good team. I mean, the obvious point, as Enda mentioned, would be France, the reigning world champions, who are very strong. With Deschamps at this point, abandoning somewhat the conservative approach that he showed last time out, where he basically played Matuidi as a defensive attacking midfielder. And he played Olivier Giroud, who scored two goals this week in a friendly. He's not gone anywhere, even if uh, Benzema calls him a go-kart. But that was always the idea, that you would have a focal point striker and then you would play Kylian Mbappe and Anton Griezmann around him. I think Benzema is a little bit more dynamic and a better footballer than Olivier Giroud, even if I don't agree with the idea of him being you know, a sports car versus a go-kart. The only problem is, is Karim Benzema going to be 100% fit? Uh, went off during the week. They were talking about it being a dead leg. He has to be assessed ahead of this weekend. At least they've got a few extra days to get him fit. But I think if Karim Benzema plays with Mbappe and Griezmann up front, they have all the firepower of France that they need. A bit like England, they've got plenty of depth across the squad. And they will be hoping that, for me, the player who will probably be player of the tournament if France win it, who is N'Golo Kante, with the way that he's finished the season, they'll hope that he's fit and in the form that he showed for Chelsea. And if that happens, he can cover twice the ground that France were trying to cover back at the World Cup last time around. And he can probably allow players like Paul Pogba uh, to do their thing around the middle of the field. If that happens and France fire, 
good luck to anyone trying to beat them, particularly when you look at the mess that Spain are because of COVID-19. I don't think that Germany are going to come out of the group, so that'll be Germany gone before we even get to the knockout stages. And if that happens, France are going to be really, really difficult to beat. Yeah, I think they are too. Colm, quickly, your uh, favourites for the tournament? I think 21 years on, France are going to do another double. I think they're going to back up the 2018 World Cup. I think they're going to win this thing. Um, They're just so well-balanced and talented in their squad. And if you have those two combinations at any level of the game, you're onto something. And I think that by default, they're actually the best because of that. They are better than any, than the other teams, than every other contender. Uh, I would be very surprised if France didn't win the Euros. Mm. All right, we're heavy on the France train on Team 33. We're looking ahead to the European Championships, which have kicked off already and are continuing throughout the weekend. So we're going to be picking our dark horses, our best dressed, and the team most likely to disappoint after the break. Stay tuned. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now you're welcome back to Team 33 and a call here with you in the company of Willow Callahan and Colin Buig because we're looking ahead to the Euros which have kicked off already and are continuing on throughout the weekend. We are heavy on France to win the tournament but who will be the dark horses? I think Scotland will be dark horses to do well in this tournament. I, I didn't really specify what type of dark horse we're talking about. Sometimes dark horse can mean a Greece who won it in 2004 but I think two teams, I'm going to pick two teams to do well rather than win it. And I think Scotland are actually going to do much better than people anticipate. And it's much better than the English press certainly anticipate they're going to do in the group. And I think they are actually going to qualify from that group with Croatia and England at the potential risk of saying that Croatia, the World Cup runners-up, are going to be knocked out of group stages of the Euros. I think Steve Clark is working with an excellent squad at the minute. And Steve Clark is Steve Clark. He's an excellent coach who's proven himself at club level, has finally got this Scotland team playing in a cohesive manner. They've got star power from Scotland and from England. And will they, they really are shaping up to be in a really good place for this tournament. And it's very interesting when you look at the parallels between Scotland and Ireland and how quickly it can turn around. Obviously, Scotland were left behind mm. at the last major tournament. And now they've turned it around. They've got Kieran Tierney playing for Arsenal, Billy Gilmore breaking through at Chelsea, Che Adams playing at Southampton. And alongside of that, they've got like David Turnbull, uh, Scott McTominay from Manchester United. They've got a really good crux of players there and they have a really good coach. So it shows what how quickly things can turn around if you actually get the things in place. Yeah, and look, Che Adams is a really good get to get ahead of the Euros. Potentially will add some goals into their team going into the finals. Like your prediction relies on two things, which is... Scotland remaining as functional as they were in qualifying and being very difficult to beat when it comes to the matches in their group and potentially maybe nicking a point off England or beating Croatia along the way. And you're relying on Croatia perhaps dropping their level from 2018, which I don't think is that unreasonable, really. Like when you consider that there's a lot of miles on the clock now uh, for a lot of their key players from 2018, particularly, you know, their two star midfielders in Rakitic and Modric are not operating at the same level, even physically, when they were back in 2018. And neither of them were really players who were, you know, all that good at getting across the park anyway. And then you add the extra years onto it. Even Modric this year, we saw in the Champions League final even though like he's such a tidy footballer and an amazing passer, Ballon d'Or winner after that World Cup, 
the three years have taken away even a little bit more from his legs. He's not as mobile at getting around as he was previously. And, you know, Rakitic has gone from being the player who was pulling the strings of Barcelona uh, to now being a player who comes in and out of the team at Sevilla after transferring back to his former club last year. You know, you look at, say, Mandzukic, who's got another three years on the clock at this stage as well. And even Perisic, who, you know, has had a really kind of up and down run really since the 2018 World Cup. I would never be as hot on Croatia as I was going into that uh, World Cup. I drew them in the office lots uh, back in 2018, and I was happy enough to get Croatia coming out of the pot. Didn't think they'd go on and win the tournament, but I had a feeling I'd get my money back by them getting at least to the last four, and that's how it played out. But I don't think it's that unreasonable to think that Scotland can get a result against them, and I don't think it's that unreasonable to think that Scotland can't go to Wembley with a chance of frustrating England when it comes to that second group game as well. It's What's going to be amazing too is that by the time that we get round to, I think, England playing the Czech Republic and when Scotland play against Croatia, the UK will have reopened fully from their COVID restrictions at that point. So it's going to be amazing to see pretty much full grounds at that point and also you know, people back in pubs and indoors and the atmosphere that it might create around that. Like we're not quite getting the 12 team festival or the 12 city uh, festival tournament that we were going to have. But in England particularly, it might be as close to that and maybe some places like Budapest where they haven't really cared much for restrictions. Those type of places might be party central when we come to the end of the group stages in late, uh, late this month. I think it's the 22nd that England opens up properly. Mm-hmm. Defensively is where Scotland will probably be a little bit lax. But if you keep an eye out for uh, Nathan Patterson, the young Rangers right back, he's a really exciting talent so fast, so uh, agile. And I think this will be his breakout tournament and potentially might win him a move to England in the next couple of years. And then <laughs> my favorite player going into this tournament, and it's amazing that he's playing at a major tournament, that's Kevin Nisbet. He's, he, he will score goals. He will be like... Um, what I call the wheel striker uh, that broke out in the Euro 2016. Hal Robson Canu. Nisbet is not good enough to be a tough striker, but he will surprise a few teams because he's on. Uh, he is unpredictable, and he's actually he's actually really good. So I, I think he'll score a couple of goals, and it's worth keeping an eye on Scotland anyway as a team to watch for this tournament. And uh, Colin, do you want to throw anybody in as dark horses? Not maybe not to win it, but even just yeah. to do better than you think they might. Yeah, I'm going to go Spain, lads. I, the, the backs Ooh. against the wall. Everyone's writing off Spain. Uh, Luis Enrique uh, has been through a lot, in fairness, and uh, he's back. And also, like, not including Sergio Ramos or any Real Madrid player. In fact, it's like everything's against them, and they're forever going to be compared to their team from a decade ago, uh, which possibly the greatest international side that we've seen. Um, and I think that uh, they could go to the last four. I could see Spain in the semi-finals. I don't think they have the capacity to win it, but I actually think they have a far better team, not individuals, but team than mm. people than um, people are giving them credit for. Before you go on, you have heard about this being coronavirus situation going on at the minute. Um, well, you know, everyone's going through coronavirus in various... They're, they're 21s. They've they've got they've got 21s under are very good ended during the week. Well, <laughs> I mean, if they're under 21s, well, they're going to win this tournament. That will be better than Greece 04. Yeah, I mean, look, they are adapt. Don't worry about that. Um, but I think they have a favourable group. At the same time, I think if they don't get out of that group, it is a massive disaster. It's, it's mm. way worse than 2014 World Cup or anything that uh, could follow the height of uh, Euro 2012 when they had three in a row three uh, international tournaments in a row. So this group is very, it's comfortable for Spain. They should progress. And then, you know, you're close to the end of the tournament then. So I could see them get to the semifinals. And the reason I think that's a good performance for Spain is that they've been written off by everyone. 
And, you know, mm. you would say rightly so. I just have a feeling that Spain will do something here. Yeah, I, I would have had them as dark horses to win the tournament had this not happened. But just I, I can't I can't look at them in terms of potential winners or potential finalists, at least with what, all that's going on. Albeit they did do, do quite well at the World Cup after their, their management situation before that tournament. So, I mean, it's been far from uh, boring in the Spain camp for the last couple of years. One team that I do want to throw into the hat here and one player that I want to throw in as part of one of your players to watch is in Spain's group, and that's Sweden. Sweden are unbeaten going into their uh, in, into this tournament in terms of their qualification group. They drew a couple of games, but they haven't lost going into this. And to keep an eye out for one Larsen, and that, that's not Henrik Larsen, that is his son, Jordan Larsen, who has broke... Uh, through at Spartak Moscow this year 15 goals in 29 games for the Russian side really exciting prospect really exciting to see a Larsen back on the pitch for Sweden and this could be again a breakthrough tournament for him in terms of the the talent that he has and whether he's good enough to do it maybe at a more um, western European club or in one of the top five leagues in Europe at least but I think Sweden don't underestimate them going into a major tournament. I think they'll definitely get out of that group. And I think they could go a little bit further than people might might give them credit for. Will, is there anybody else before we move on to the team to disappoint? Yeah, I'm picking a team who are on an unbeaten run as well and they're coming into the tournament. And maybe I'll be proved horribly wrong when their game finishes just after we go off air in a little bit. But that's Italy. I think, again, they've got the advantage of hosting games in Rome. Uh, they're currently on a really good unbeaten run. They come in slightly under the radar because it's such a disappointing uh, World Cup qualification campaign. But they're 27 matches unbeaten now at this stage. They've gone 12 games without conceding a goal as part of that 27-game run as well. They're going to be quite difficult to break down during the tournament. And when you look across their squad, even though they're maybe not full of the stars of old when you look back at 2000 or 2006, Italy have got a really good group of players this time around. And they've got a favourable group and a favourable top half of the draw too. If you think about it, like Italy should be coming out of a group that has Turkey, Switzerland and Wales in it. And then a lot of the other top seeds in the tournament are on the other side. So if they can avoid them, Italy can potentially have a nice run to the final as well. So Mancini's team, I think, can go quite deep into this tournament. And there may be a team that people are forgetting about when I see the bookmakers are kind of quoting them at four or five to one to win the tournament. I think they've got a better chance than that. Yeah, Italy, do, I do think they're definitely potential, maybe finalists, if not winners. I think they are really got a good squad going there and Italy never do bad at a major tournament. They never do not turn up when when they finally get there. So it's, it's not about the journey to getting there, it's about how you perform when you actually get to the tournament. I think Italy are star performers all the time when it comes to major tournaments. I think Mancini will be one of the best dressed managers who will have one of the best-dressed teams as well. So we're going to finish off with the jerseys, the best-dressed jerseys. I did a rankings of these on the Off the Ball YouTube page if you want to go check that out. But I think Italy's jersey is amazing going into this. It's just, it sums up the team, just classic, suave, and Italian class. Uh, Colm, have you been looking at the jerseys going into this? Who's your favourite? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like the contrast and the colour to the jersey for Italy. Good shout. Croatia's away jersey. Have you seen it? Unbelievable. Croatia, their home and away are both lovely. Oh, like, well, their home, yeah, their home is just forever. Like that checkered pattern is amazing, but their away jersey is class. I kind of wish they would change the checker up. To be honest, like it's a bit boring at this stage. Ah, no, no, it's iconic. I would say. Um, mm. 
And I have two more shout-outs. Uh, the Netherlands I like because it's a shout-out to their jersey from 20 years ago at Euro 2000, which I loved. Just very simple, but I like that colour and that uh, nobody else really pulls it off. So I uh, I love the in-your-face orangeness of their jersey. I always have. And uh, lastly, from me, hipster choice of Finland's jersey is very nice. Very, very nice. With uh, I like a white jersey and it's a beautiful uh, navy into blue stripe as it descends on the jersey. Mm. Very nice call. And if you're playing, if, it's, if you're playing a game of Astro and you have white colors against uh, every other color, it's a nice jersey to have. So I would, for practical reasons, recommend buying it. Yeah, so it's that. funny that you mentioned all three of those because they are three that were not very highly ranked on my list. As well, you didn't rank, you rank anything. There was because, no you having a positive volume. Well, <laughs> there were. I mean, it's not it's the best collection of international jerseys we ever had. I think that Finland jersey is a bit cheap. Again, I did say, I did say, when Ireland played them, I looked at it and I was like, you know, that's a very nice jersey. But I've changed my opinion, and I think the Netherlands one is just a bit boring. Um, well, it could be a lot nicer. What are you, what are you looking for in a jersey? I don't. Uh, I'm looking for exactly. Look at the. the I'll, I'll throw into the hat Sweden. Sweden's jersey is the best jersey at this major tournament. It's yellow. I don't either. Not mad at the yellow jersey. It's got. Oh, I love the yellow jersey. Blue, the blue uh, Adidas stripes on the collar. Then a, a little uh, sleeve that has blue and uh, a darker navy. And it's just, it suits. It's just, it's just classy. That's that's the word I'm looking for. It's classy. Will anybody you want to throw in? Yeah, I'm just kind of looking through some of the kits here currently, and there's a lot of kind of back to the future about it. Like even Denmark have gone for a jersey that really kind of goes back to 1992. Not that any of this is a bad thing, but they're, some of them are a little bit boring. Like I quite like the French shirt, but again, it really feels like a few that they've worn recently, at least as Colm said, uh, the bit of blue design, uh, which is worked in at the bottom of the cross on the Finland jersey, makes it stand out a little bit by comparison. Again, Scotland's feels a little bit old fashioned, even though it's quite nice and I'm sure it's going to sell like hotcakes. I kind of like the uh, really crazy design on the Slovakia home kit, particularly where you know Nike have been really, really conservative in terms of how they've done their jerseys. It looks like the Slovakian jersey has been driven over by a tank. Uh, <laughs> similarly, they've done something like that with the Adidas for the uh, Belgium jersey, uh, the red one. I'm not sure exactly why there are two uh, trank, uh, two of the uh, what looks like the tracks of a tank on their jersey as well. But at least they make them stand out a little bit by comparison to some of the rest of them. Like understated can look great the puma italy one uh, particularly i think is right up there with the two croatias home and away as the very very top jerseys and again they've kept that relatively simple but some of the rest of them feel very safe like the two portuguese jerseys feel really really safe going into this tournament and it's not been uh nike's best hour in terms of some of the ones that they've designed for this i'm looking at the pinstripes that sweden have on their away kit as well which i think is quite nice i'm actually more of a fan of sweden's away than for yeah. their home uh, it's a pretty, min- pretty minimal-looking uh, pinstripe that they've got there. The one I was a little bit disappointed by after a run of fantastic kits, and I know this one is splitting opinion, I'm really not sure about the Germany home kit, lads. I really yeah, like it. It's okay, yeah. 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 Mm. I have expectations for Germany. That's the problem, Enda. Yeah. Like, they've had a few really, really nice ones at major tournaments, and this one looks way more like a training kit or one of those kind of jerseys that you buy is casual wear as opposed to being a, a match shirt. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. The France jersey is very like that as well. So I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. So we'll finish this up then really quickly. Then I'll get you to say 
the best team at the tournament, the worst team at the tournament doesn't necessarily have to be the worst team, but the worst team relative to their ability or their talent and uh, pick a winner off the tournament overall, maybe a runner up as well. So Colm, I'll let you have the, the first shot with this. Uh, the best team and winner will be France. Um, runner up, I'm going to go with um, Spain. And uh, my disappointment of the tournament will be Portugal because I think Cristiano Ronaldo will become a problem for them as opposed mm. to a catalyst. Interesting. So Spain's your runner up, France the winners, and Portugal the disappointments. Yeah. Will, who do you want to go with? Well, look, I can't give you a runner-up because by my own admission, I haven't looked at the brackets far enough to see where it goes beyond the semi-finals at this stage. And oh, yeah, potentially right. I could give you a runner-up who can't get to the finals. So I'm with Colin, though. I think uh, France will win, ultimately. Um, I think the relative disappointment, uh, despite the fact that since Virgil van Dijk got injured, their expectations have been lowered a little bit. I think the Netherlands might actually stink at this unless Memphis Depay buys them out with a lot of individual goals along the way. Uh, I think they're going to be poor. I really enjoyed Ronald De Boer last week saying that Johan Cruyff would turn <laughs> over in his grave if he saw the football that uh, Frank De Boer yeah. was playing with the team currently. Uh, that's familial relations for you, really. And yeah, I think they're going to be the big disappointments. France do really well and Netherlands are going to disappoint because everyone kind of sees them as having Euro tradition and generally doing well at big tournaments. And I think they might stink a bit, lads. Yeah, I agree. And I again, we don't know what way the fixture is going to fall here. So I think Italy will be the second best. I'll say it that way. I think France are going to win it. And like you, I think Netherlands are going to be absolutely awful. I think they're going to stink it out. And I, I don't know if they're going to get out of that group. And their group is a fairly easy group. Mm. They're going to have, they have Austria, North Macedonia and Ukraine. I think it's going to be Austria and Ukraine coming out of that group with Netherlands being a real disappointment because Frank de Boer is a terrible manager. He's a terrible manager. I am definitely coming back to you, Ender, with that prediction of Group C. Why watch the Dutch win it now? Well, uh, watch the Dutch go and prove me wrong. Like They they did pretty well at the World Cup a couple of years ago when everyone thought they were going to stink it out as well. So if they do well, you know, the Dutch are always entertaining to watch as well. But hopefully we'll have a good tournament. That's all I'm hoping for anyway. But Will O'Callaghan and Colin Buig, enjoy the Euros and we'll chat to you throughout the tournament. Cheers, lads. All right, we'll take a quick break. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Hey, welcome back to Team 33. So that is all we have time for on this week's show. Thanks as ever to you for listening. If you want to listen back to that show or any of the Team 33 podcasts, you can get it in the OTB Sports app where you can subscribe to the Team 33 feed and get notified every single time a podcast goes live. I really hope everyone out there enjoys the Euros. It's been a long time coming. It's been over a year. We've been waiting on it. Unfortunately, we won't have any games to go to in Ireland but we will have loads of games coming up over the coming weeks and we will be covering them here on Team 33. Hopefully we will have some interviews and some nostalgia throughout the tournament as well. So stay tuned for all that. Back again, same time, same place next week. But until then, Ihawa, Slangafoil, August Takeaway, Johan. (laughs) 